0: Welcome, children of all ages, comic book fans, young and old, and visitors or permanent residents from this or any other galaxy or interspatial origin. You're all welcome here at DC Comics News Spinner Rack. This is episode number 38. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and we're going to dive right into the top five books this week, just like every week, from DC Comics. I should warn you, if I sound just a little bit excited and hoarse, it's because we celebrated our 50th episode of DC Comics News Podcast this past week, and we highlighted it with interviews including Mark Guggenheim, the creator-showrunner of Arrow, as well as New York Times best-selling author Cami Garcia, author of Raven and the upcoming Beast Boy title. But the best part for me is how, with both of our interviews, we covered more than just DC Comics and DC Comic Book characters, learned a bit about baking a Coca-Cola cake, how to break out of a pair of handcuffs, and just what it is that Aaron Sorkin and the West Wing have to do with, well, comic book shows. You're going to want to tune in to not only our 50th episode, but the interviews with Mark Guggenheim and Cami Garcia, and you're going to want to stick around until the very end of this episode, so you can hear all the ways to make sure you catch this and everything else coming to you from DC Comics News. In the meantime, let's get started on those top five books. My first choice. Doomsday Clock, number 12. It's the grand finale to a long-awaited, and if you've listened to the DC Comics News podcast, you know how long we've waited, for the final issue in the 12-issue run, written by Jeff Johns, with art by Gary Frank and Brad Anderson. I think it's a challenge to take on something as large in scale as Doomsday Clock has been and the content that it tries to address, which is what happens when a godlike figure steps into the world we love and begins moving things around. Interestingly enough, it attempts to take responsibility for many of the strange developments that have occurred within DC Comics and its timeline say, over the last 10 or 15 years, in a few cases, perhaps even longer. Now, it's been highlighted as the long-awaited showdown between Superman and Dr. Manhattan. And while part of that is true, it's not a classic duke-em-out, put him up last man standing. Because when you're dealing with a figure that can manipulate time and atoms, The approach becomes much more cerebral and it's through a conversation with Superman where Superman begins by asking for help and challenging Dr. Manhattan to use the great power that he wields to do something more than to be an observer and to do nothing more than bear witness. I enjoyed the approach that This begins this launching of what does Dr. Manhattan do in this moment that, up until now, he hasn't been able to see beyond. And he can see what it is he's capable of doing in this moment. And we get a number of great developments, story wise. The attempt to explain more about how the events through the previous issues have led to the unraveling, then tangling, and then re-straightening, or perhaps balancing the timeline as we know it, and as it affects different characters. We see that his longer-range tales and the threads that began so far ago are brought to conclusions that feel complete, and overall do their best to not be influenced by the amount of time that's passed since the first announcement of delays began in the beginning of last year. I think overall this was an amazing work that did the great thing of attempting something bigger than maybe even it knew it was trying to do, or was well aware of, and yet even so tried to reach beyond what should be known or given limitations. I was really impressed with the effort. I believe the execution is something that is weighed, judged and valued by each reader, and that's not something I'm gonna place on it. Certainly not for you, certainly not for myself, or for anyone else who hears this in the future and decides that maybe they wanna follow the story from the beginning and read this ending on their own with their own assessment. And if you get it as a collected trade, there's a chance there might be a different viewpoint taken based on how the story reads through cleanly with no interruptions or delays or the conversations that came with them. Overall, I think this was a stellar accomplishment and an impressive way to not only close out this book, but even now. I personally believe that I'm seeing events unfold within the DC Comics universe, within a number of books, that's reflecting the minute, subtle, and while not giant, long-range reverberations from the conclusion of this story. Perhaps this timing was part of what led into or caused some of the delays, We're not going to know until the people involved actually speak on it. What we will know, and what I'm going to know from this point on, is that this is a book that is going to be judged in many ways based on when it's read and what came before that, and also how that influenced the reading experience. Because, again, if you just get the chance to get this as a collected series sit down and read it from cover to cover. Your take might be completely different than someone who has been waiting since the beginning of the year for issues 10, 11, and 12 to be completed before the end of 2019. I'm going to give this one a solid 4.5 out of 5. I think when you're attempting something as big as this book attempts, it's hard to get a complete 5 because in many ways... You can't even see all the things you're reaching for until after you've made the attempt and can afterwards judge that distance more accurately. Because of that, I'm looking forward to seeing just how large scale Mr. Johns and perhaps this entire creative team are willing to go on another title. Or if perhaps we might see something with a narrower scope and a shorter range in the future either individually from members of this team, or, perhaps again, uh, as the creative team that created this amazing workforce. Once again, a solid 4.5 out of 5 for me for Doomsday Clock, number 12. Now, much like the book that we just discussed, my second choice for episode number 38, Batman number 85, is a book that is also been waited on with a great deal of expectation, and given the developments that have occurred within this run by Tom King, it's easy to understand why that anticipation exists. The story by Tom King is supported by The Amazing Art by Mikel Yanin, Hugo Petrus, and Jody Blair on Art and Colors, respectively. With Clayton Cowles providing the letters, and Tony S. Daniel and Tomu Mori providing the classic cover, and Francesco Matina supplying the final variant cover for this run. Finales are challenging. They make it difficult to see the long story that's been told. There's the, again, anticipation and expectation. That comes with an ending. Can it tie up all the loose ends? Can it close all of the possibilities until there's only one left? Or can it bring a resolution to them until there's just a final story left to be told? Batman number 85 completes the City of Bane storyline. And we see the final confrontation between Bruce and his father, Thomas, from another Earth, And we also see a series of events, both before and after this final confrontation, describing how individual vignettes, which were told, which were completed, which in many ways may have begun 20 or 30 issues ago, are... Revealed in a new light with new scenes and additional perspective. It's really easy to see how Tom King has made a point of telling this love story for Batman, this long reaching tale, applying many of the layered elements you might find in a well constructed novel or a finely tuned screenplay. The result is much like Doomsday Clock, in which it asks of the reader, have you been paying attention to all of the details, whether it has to do with Bane, Bruce, Thomas, or even Kite Man, and the smaller storylines about whether or not it was a boat or a beach or what it was like when there was a final confrontation with Bane, if that was the final confrontation, and what the consequences are for all of these characters once this climactic one-on-one, mano mano fight between Bruce and Thomas is over. We get a chance to capture small pieces of life for characters like Gotham Girl, and for some of the lesser-known rogues, and we also have the opportunity to see just a little bit more of what it is that makes Batman so great. Hint, it has very little to do with his fighting prowess or his utility belt. More likely, it comes from something within, and impressively, it's revealed on the page, and One of the more eloquent ways I've seen the Batman story and nature revealed. I think this is a really great conclusion to a very impressive run. One that has made a point, sorry, as I almost spill my coffee cup in exultation. I come across the fact that this is one of those stories that was told with a great deal of care and thought. And one that did its best to create a series of these long running pieces that, by the end, feel like they are part of this melody. And even if they didn't have the same degree of importance as who wins, Bruce versus Thomas, Batman versus Babe, love versus loss when it comes to the bat and cat. These other melodies that are with it, these other storylines, have made this such a really complete tale that at any point I believe you can reread it and following just one character take a new weight and depth of understanding when it comes to what the overall approach was how the attempt was made, and whether or not it was achieved. I think any time you write a book like this, it's much like they say when it comes to other forms of writing. It's about how you are writing to the masters and what you are asking them to hear or pay attention to. The award cycles and public criticism are generally the only ways to know, in my belief. Overall, this has been a really thoughtful and impressive effort. And this conclusion is one that can be very well understood by the pages and issues that came before. But if you're hopping on right now and hoping to have that same degree of understanding, so many parts of the story will not be accessible for you. In which case, I'm going to encourage, start from the beginning, follow it to the end, and then you'll have a chance to understand, like Doomsday Clock, what this experience really was about. When it comes to my final score, especially given the fact that the past 85 issues have all been written with the same approach and level of execution from Tom King and his creative team, interchanging as it might, I believe this met all the goals it wanted to, and for that reason, I'm happy to give it a solid 4.5 out of 5. I have the .5 off because I had my own expectations, and in every way I wanted them to be, they were mostly met, but Tom King can't know what I'm thinking, and I'm still going to have personal takes when it comes to any issue. When it comes to this final, there were just a few things I wanted a bit more of, but the high caliber of this issue keeps it at a 4.5 for me, and more interestingly, will be the score you choose to share, if you decide to let us know just what that is. Those were my first two choices of DC Comic News Spinner Rack, episode number 38, which means it's time to take a quick ad break, and then come back to you. After you've been well informed with my third, fourth, and fifth choices, it's a short break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for sticking around. Hi, everyone. I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. (laughs) No, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, (laughs) and everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) No. First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came The Spitter Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I am the Knight. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the night. And just like that, we've paid our bills, the commercials are over, and it's time to dive into books number three, four, and five. On episode number 38 of the DC Comics News, Spinner Rack, I'm still your host, Seth Singleton. Or at least, I think I am. If you've been reading books like Inferior 5, there's always a possibility that what you think you are, and who you think you are, might not actually be true. Sadly, that'll be a book we won't be able to talk about this week. But something that we do get to talk about is my third choice, one that I'm really intrigued by because of the conversations we had on the DC Comics News podcast about this book and the expectations that can go along with it, and also how it's taking its name quite literally. I'm talking about The Suicide Squad, number one, written by Tom Taylor, with art by Bruno Renando cover by Ivan Rice, Joe Prado, and Alex Sinclair is a lot of fun, and the variant cover, Francesco Matina, is one of those great white void backgrounds with some really great shadows placed on top. This Suicide Squad, when it was announced, promised that there would be a lot of changeover. <laughs> And it's something that was intriguing for me, because for so long, Suicide Squad presented the idea of criminals on suicide missions, unlikely to survive, and put to work by their government with bombs in their necks, and the understanding that should they fail or go rogue, they could be blown up at the snap of a fingers, or simply the push of a butt. That concept while initially one that was intriguing, quickly softened, and it became more likely that a retinue of returning Suicide Squad members built the framework of the stories that I saw back in the early 90s. This new take on Suicide Squad promised to not let these characters, who are supposed to be expendable, hang around too long. And very early on, not only does it display the violent nature of some of the heroes and powered beings within the world, but how the Suicide Squad is tasked to handle them, and how a new form of leadership has not only replaced, but relegated Amanda Waller to an observer role. Why this is happening is something I think you should experience while reading the book or get as a spoiler from someone else, because I don't think it's right for me to reveal just what happens and why it is she's no longer the one in charge. But the brusque way that it is presented is so sharp and factual. It's such a great reflection of the military-slash-bureaucracy that is so often running programs that we can't believe are actually allowed to exist, and yet are stubbornly persistent in their execution of orders. In this story, we see how the concept behind the Suicide Squad is broadened when the team, after its first mission, gains a new set of members to replace some of those who's passed. And the challenges that it means for both the current team and those who are just about to join it. Suffice to say, tensions will be high in the next few issues, and there are plenty of chances for infighting and betrayal. And yet, with new leadership in charge, it's going to be interesting to see how much of that will even be possible, simply because... This new leader has made no qualms about using each and every powered individual as a tool, and with an encyclopedic knowledge of their abilities, their threats, and strategic preparations, he seems to have been holding the upper hand even before he took charge. You'll want to see just how he handles this new Suicide Squad, who is able to survive this first issue, who becomes a new member of the team, and what that means for your expectations for issue number two. I thought this was a really strong start to this new take on the Suicide Squad and what we can expect not only from them, but from this creative team telling a very brutal story about characters that we are designed to care about Whether they stay with us for more than one issue, or whether their appearance, much like their passing, is all too quick. I'm going to give Suicide Squad a solid 5 out of 5 for its start, for its approach, for its understanding of the climate that it is being written in, and for its power to grab the reader, in this case my attention, so quickly to hold it and to maintain it. This was a really fun issue to read, to review, and to share with you. Once again, a 5 out of 5 from me for Suicide Squad, number 1. Now my fourth choice for this episode is Hellblazer, number 2, part of the Sandman universe, and the new book featuring the lovable roustabout known as John Constantine trench coat wearing, cigarette smoking, and always with a great attitude. John arrives, last issue, a few years out of time, out of place. And the process for him to get back on his feet is not pretty. I love the fact that when they need him, powerful beings who are part of teams like Justice League and so many others will come to John with a degree of reverence and understanding for what he's capable of. But overall, it doesn't always seem like he's very well respected. Maybe it's attitude. Maybe it's the constant smoking. What I'm intrigued by is how in this series so far, John doesn't get much respect from anyone else. He's been kidnapped and pulled into working with a local gang run by a figure known as K-Mag, who scries the future and other portents using blood magic, and has tasked John with taking out what so far have been deemed angels. Now, it gets interesting here, because among those who don't really respect John is a bouncer, a young woman at a tavern where he's done his best to hang out, and who very quickly reveals to him, through a bit of insight, that where he was, a place known as Peckham Rye, is a featured location in the writings of William Blake, and this leads to a discussion about other concepts that Blake suggested, and wrote about regarding angels and other divine figures to test out not only what this means, but also to sort of complete the humbling process when the bouncer points out to him that she knows a lot about this because she's actually also working on a literature degree. John heads down to... A place where he believes the angels might still be and using the <laughs> mangled face of a figure who he promises to one day correct that misfortune for is able to goad the angels into an appearance and that's when we get the chance to see in full color a character known as the vestibulean and Learn a little bit about the backstory of a character who was cursed for not taking sides during the war between Heaven and the fallen angels. And also a revelation about what this means for what he's able to do to angel flesh. And what happens when he's unleashed and something else is discovered. Along with this bigger tale, we get the moment for character insights about a homeless man with a really painful, tragic history, and a lot of challenges that I certainly don't know if I could overcome. And yet, there he is, part of this larger narrative, participating, and in his own sometimes quiet, sometimes raging madness, is a part of the character set that, even in his low place, doesn't quite respect John Constantine. For a worker of magic who, in so many ways, appears right now to be a bit of a scruff, a bit of a uh, down-and-out character, his dogged persistence reminds me of a great detective noir. Whether or not he can be the PI to bring this case to a conclusion is something we're going to have to come back to for more issues. But after a stellar start with issue number one, which was also featured on the Spinner Rack, and this issue number two, which I'm happy to give a solid five out of five, I think I and other readers can expect many good things in the future. Now for my fifth and final choice, right here on the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number 38. Happy to bring you today the story of Year of the Villain, Hella issue number one. In a great tale from James Tynan IV, with art and cover work by Steve Epting, colors by Nick Filardi, letters by Travis Lanham and a really great variant cover by Ricardo Federici. Now this story interestingly opens 1 year ago with a conversation between Lex Luthor and the Batman who laughs. In this conversation, the Batman who laughs presents a very interesting idea. What would it be like if Luthor took on the batman who laughs when they're both at their full power what would happen if lex Luthor took on the batman who laughs if they were both at their full power much like superman lex Luthor views the batman who laughs as an amazing challenge as a figure who attempts to usurp the smartest man on Earth, and in the process become someone to despise and belittle until eventually the confrontation that will unfold will reveal that, as always, Lex Luthor is the one and only winner. Along the way, we have a chance to witness just what it is that's also been occurring off the page regarding the apex predator storyline the pursuit of perpetua to shift the entire universe to doom what happens to planets like earth 3 that willingly seek to side with her and gain her approval and also what it means for characters who might ordinarily be able to view these events from an outside perspective, like Rip Hunter. And when they get in the clutches of the Batman Who Laughs, it's clear that the effects of what he's trying to accomplish, and also how it conflicts with Lex Luthor, has damaging ramifications not only for the past and the present, but also the future. Rip Hunter's desire to be anywhere else but the time where he is right now with the Batman Who Laughs is an interesting way of creating tension for what could be disastrous fortunes to unfold in upcoming issues of Hell Arisen or the Year of the Villain storyline. I'm also intrigued because we see how the Batman Who Laughs has been orchestrating a series of, as they call them, machinations to bring about the confrontation with Lex Luthor one year after their initial conversation and how in doing so we can see that the figures who have been part of the infected storyline are playing more than just a disruptive role for the heroes seeking to cure them and how, as part of the Batman Who Laughs retinue, this team is about to show Lex Luthor just what it is he's up against and how much he quite possibly has and most likely will continue to underestimate the Batman Who Laughs. I think this sets the stage for some really interesting changes and potential Story entanglements for the Justice League and many other characters who so far have seen their fight as mostly against Lex Luthor. But the Batman who laughs by providing this challenge to Luther's plan might not only affect the outcome of Luther's goals and maybe even that of Perpetua, but also might be something that when taken advantage of by the Batman Who Laughs, could lead to a whole series of new challenges for the Justice League and so many other heroes. To be honest, I'm really just wondering if Rip Hunter will actually make it out of this alive, or more importantly, even if he does survive to live and tell the tale. Will a scarred figure, who has been such a member of the legacy canon, when it comes to DC Comics, be the same once he's free. I thought this was a really great introduction to a new story thread that can either run parallel, be entwined with, or provide a new direction during the year of the villain, the Doom Justice War and so many other things that have made 2019 quite the crossover experience. I thought Hell Arisen was a really smart take and a great way to show how this infected storyline by the Batman who laughs is part of something bigger and also a chance to follow the Doom Justice War from a different perspective I thought this was a solid 5 out of 5 one that I was really happy to read and share with you and more than anything I'm intrigued by exactly what your thoughts might be because this was our final issue that brings episode number 38 of the Spinner Rack to a close it gives me a chance to let you know that DC Comics News is available on all the major podcast platforms so if you haven't yet Head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Subscribe, and if you're feeling froggy, rate and review. I think we're five stars, but I also think you have your own opinion, and that's what we really hope to hear when you share it with us. You can also follow us on social media, and let us know just what you think about this episode of The Spinner Rack. Our recent episode number fifty and interviews with Mark Guggenheim and Miss Cami Garcia, and you can also keep up with newer content like the recent "I Am the Night" episode by episode podcast for Batman the Animated Series, hosted by podcast co-conspirator Steve J. Ray. His approach allows you to take a closer and more in-depth look at the Legendary Animated Series, and we're even looking at maybe our own Brad Fulecki starting up a fashion podcast. If you've been following along with DC Comics News Podcast, you might be familiar with his take on just what makes a nice pair of jeans the right set of Whether or not this fashion perspective is something we can encourage him to turn into a podcast is something I encourage you to stick around for. But more importantly, subscribe so you never miss an episode of this I Am the Night, the DC Comics News Podcast, or other podcasts on the horizon. More importantly, between this and every episode, and during all of your downtime, There's always one great thing to keep in mind and to practice, and that is to always read more comics. Thanks for joining me this week. Looking forward to coming back to you and sharing just what it is DC Comics has in store for you and us. See you next time.